This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. So, um, you know, this is there's people with varying levels of experience here and uh, some people here for the first time. So uh, given that, we're in the middle of a three-month uh, training intensive um, in which um, it's called Ango. And it's a tradition that goes back to the time of the Buddha, uh, where the um, practitioners would gather for three months during the rainy season, twice a year. And we do Ango twice a year. And work with the teachers and the senior uh, monks. And um, are you able to find a seat? Um, And offer teachings. And one of the kinds of teachings is Mondo. And in this, I'll offer something. And um, then pretty much open it up for questions. And this is a trial uh, to do it in this circumstance, because usually people who come to Amanda with a specific topic have decided to do that. Um, Everybody here is a non-volunteer, pretty much. Um, You didn't know what was going to happen. and uh, it only works if you ask questions or investigate or push the envelope. And it doesn't matter if this is your first time here or you're very, very experienced. If you have a question or if you want to explore something or say something, then I'd encourage you to do so. We also need a couple of volunteers. Do we need a couple of volunteers for microphones? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, um, so um, please wait uh, until you're called on uh, so we can get a microphone to you. It, it, this is being recorded. And as you know, when it goes on the Internet, who knows what happens? Um, so, um, uh, you know, there's no message beyond that, just to, to be aware that we share the teachings with people. Uh, and that's appreciated, and it goes widely. Um, I wanted to talk today about the second noble truth and the, the Ango topic that what we're exploring these, for these three months, both at the monastery and here, and through many hundreds of people's practice, uh, literally around the world, and their names are on the sheets uh, in the anteroom there. You'll, you'll see uh, a list of people who've committed formally to Ango, and then many more who've not made a formal commitment but are still participating. And so we're exploring the original teachings of the Buddha uh, and um, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. And doing that through a series of teachings, through um, the liturgy, through um, uh, sessions, week-long sessions that we have at the monastery. We've had one here, not a week-long one, but a, a shorter one. And part of the teachings are what is called academic study. So this mando is a little more discursive academic way of studying inherently because there's there's discourse here, there's question, there's answer. And of course, Zen uh, famously does not rely on words and letters. It relies on direct experience. And yet, uh, studying and understanding is crucial. Intellectual studying and understanding is crucial. 
uh, and it's very easy to, um, the absence of that can easily create, create what's called spiritual bypassing, where you're practicing, you're sitting zazen, there may even be insight, but you're not addressing necessarily the psychological, psychic, and karmic um, uh, challenges that each of us as individuals have within us, and they may never become visible. And it's possible for, not only possible, but happens regularly for people with significant amounts of a practice experience and insight into the Dharma not to necessarily have insight into their own behavior and their own psychological, the word that we use in Buddhism is classes, neuroses, hang-ups, if you will. And, uh, and you see evidence of that in, in people of power who misuse their power, even though they may have insight. I, I started most of my initial spiritual um, investigation uh, in Denver and... Um, in Zen, and yet interacted a lot with Trump and students. And a great teacher, clear as a bell, and yet there was a lot of difficulty and challenge from uh, the places that he himself psychologically, I can't say he wasn't clear on them, I don't know, uh, but I saw the fallout from it. That fallout occurs in every religious tradition. Uh, in every spiritual practice, there are, as I say, bodies left on the road. And that's simply true because of all the different reasons that people come to spiritual practice, their karma, the uh, type of the teaching that may or may not be suitable for them, and many other factors. Uh, it's not directly attributable to any one thing, uh, just as in, in every conflict, there's no single party that's at fault. Uh, it's always a lot of factors. And, and something that's worthwhile keeping in mind. So the Buddha said, I teach suffering, its origin and sensation in the path. That's all I teach. And that's what we do here. That's it. Um, and there are things that are given up and not doing other things. I mean, um, so for example, we're not great with um, social community. We have some, and we foster that, but the, because the emphasis is so strictly on spiritual practice and realization, that's where the energy goes, not exclusively, but mostly. So I teach suffering, its origin, uh, its cessation, and the path to that sensation, cessation. That's all I teach. And he said that 2,500 years ago. I don't think the suffering he was speaking of has changed at all in the 2,500 years since or endless time before him. So these, the Four Noble Truths are the truths that he spoke upon his own awakening. And there's a story that goes along with this, but the first sermon he gave contains this. And yesterday, during the All Day Sit, the Zazenkai, I, I spoke some of the words of that first sermon as recorded uh, sometime after his death, um, and um, to, to look at those words, to look specifically at his first teaching, because everything that we do <clears throat> is based on these teachings, this, this first teaching. It's based on his awakening and what he taught out of that awakening. And um, the, the first is the truth of suffering of dukkha. And we've examined that already. We've had a, a, an academic study of that. Uh, but that's not a one-time thing. That's always there. 
Uh, and uh, you know, one of the points that I think is important to be aware of is that no matter how long you practice and the cessation of suffering is being offered here, life and death, suffering and freedom from suffering are completely entwined. They're one whole thing. You can't have one without the other. So every human being suffers, whether they acknowledge that or not, not or um, agrees with that or not, is from a Buddhist perspective irrelevant. It's inherent in the ordinary, common way that we view ourselves and others. It's built in to the fact that we seem to work from the perspective that I'm here, you're there, we're different, and while perhaps if I'm a nice person or you know, my inclination is to help you if, if it poss- at all possible, mostly what happens, if it comes down to you and me, it's going to be me. And that's the perspective. Now, that's not the Mahayana Buddhist perspective. It's not the Buddhist perspective of Zen. The Buddhist perspective of Zen is in the four vows that we'll chant at the end here. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them, meaning help them awaken. doesn't mean make them all Buddhists, but it means, which Buddhism has no interest in doing, but it does mean to help them in their suffering. And there are three more vows that we'll chant subsequent to that. So that's a pervasive truth. And you can look at it from many perspectives. The Buddha originally looked at it before he was the Buddha. He first encountered it as sickness, old age, and death. And there are stories associated with that that I'm not going to talk about right now. But he saw that for himself, even though he lived a life protected from it. And yet, you will see it. You will experience it. You will die. So that's inevitable. And inherent in that is from a separated point of view, me here, death out there, me here, sickness out there, you're going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. Um, Beyond that, there's many more subtle forms of suffering. Uh, You know, there's the inherent anxiety that exists in all of us, which seems to be satiated when we get what we want temporarily and then recurs. And even when we get what we want, I mean, picture the, the so picture, just using an, ex, an, an obvious example of a society, is if you had all the money you can imagine, what would your life be like? Now you have to steer your money down the road, right? You have to take care of your money. You have to protect it. You've got to do something with it. Your life is now money. Um, and you can disassociate yourself with that, but society won't let you. Um, etc., etc. And we can have conversations about that, but understand the example I'm trying to give. And that's true of any other fundamental desire that you can think of that would fulfill you temporarily or perhaps long-term. And also, let's acknowledge there are people who go through life who live, live lives that seem to be charmed, that everything comes their way and they live happily ever after and then they die. And from a Buddhist perspective, that too is suffering. That too is suffering because when the karma, the effect of the lifetimes that they've lived that has accrued in that pleasant experience, when that is used up, then they'll face other things, a different life. And again, you can buy that or not buy that. Um, You can look at karma from a lot of different perspectives. So there's the truth of suffering. Um... And the truth of the origin of suffering, which we'll explore in a few moments. 
and the truth is of the cessation of suffering, which basically means, um, I, my f- phrase is suffering is optional. It doesn't have to be that way. It usually is, but it does not have to be that way. And the truth of the path of cessation of suffering, which I would say, here's how. And this place represents one understanding of here's how. There are other ways within Buddhism to emphasize here's how. This is not the only way. So the, from a fundamental Buddhist perspective, um, and let, let me just say this, it's easy to come here and sit Zazen, and particularly if you're someone for whom Zazen um, is relational and, and feels right and nourishes you, and still not have a clear understanding of what's causing suffering in you and others uh, and where it comes from and how what you're doing could address it. And I already mentioned there are some dangers in not understanding that spiritual bypassing is one of them. There are others. Um, But the Buddha taught there are three basic roots of suffering, and they're sometimes articulated in different ways. Uh, Greed, anger, and ignorance. And anger really means um, hatred, destructive urges, um, passions, if you will. And those passions can also be in the name of something that seemingly seems good and yet causes suffering. So think of colonialism. Think of the fact, as best as I can tell, that more people have been killed in the name of God than in perhaps any other name, if you will, in the name of goodness, so to speak. Um, so the, the greediness or desire is, is inherent in us. And the Buddha taught that every thought we have can be traced back to one of three perspectives. Every single thought. And I've said many times, well, let me put that aside. Um, the desire to go towards or have or acquire, or want, or like. There's a desire to go away from, to avoid, to not have, to shut out. And there's a desire, and forgive me for this, but it's how I experience it, to be numb and dumb. (laughs) You know, to be, the Buddha said neutral. He was much more generous than I am. But, um, and that's a big one, too, to, to not, to not want, I don't want to deal with this. You know, I'll deal with it later, maybe when I'm dead, you know. Um, but, you know, that's maybe as common as the other two. But you can certainly, in you and in the person next to you, and certainly in the politics of our world and in the commerce of our world, see this greediness. It's built into us. I love Amazon. I live, when I'm not here, in a very rural place. There's no access to things. Order Amazon the next day or two, it's at my door. Isn't that wonderful? But, but, um, ignorance or delusion, um, which um, means not to know the truth of things. And passion, which really, I think, is a better word than hatred or or destructive urges, which is kind of a traditional way of looking at it, which... Uh, traditionally in the original teaching, uh, the emphasis was not to, was 
to extinguish those passions. In the Mahayana understanding of Buddhism, and in Zen in particular, we're not interested in distinguishing those passions. Those passions represent an energy that could be used to awaken. So we're not interested in getting rid of feelings or fixing feelings at all. Please understand that. And if you want to be here to fix your feelings and make them into different feelings, probably that will not help you. Probably it'll create different additional suffering. But what we want to do is have a deep awareness of what we feel, of our anxiety, of our fear, of the events that have occurred in our life that have created so much harm that we've done to others or others have done to us. And to use that energy, because it's all energy, it's all chi, it's all life, and to use that to wake up, to apply that to Zazen and to the other practices that will help us see things as they truly are without the filter of ourself between us and the direct experience of true life, of true joy, of true living, of true dying, of the whole package, of which no part of that package of life or of you, or of you, no part of you is excluded. So please understand that we're not getting rid of anything here. That's not the business we're in, at least from a Zen perspective. So I'm going to stop here. Got seven or eight more pages that just out of my insecurity I wanted to have up here. But I want to see what you have to say and um, explore that with you. Um, and I would encourage, so those who are eager to ask five questions, just ask one. Those who are eager to ask no questions, please ask one. And hopefully we'll all benefit. And I'm as eager to learn from you as I hope you are to learn from this process as, as well. So the floor is open. We're dealing with the second noble truth, the origin or the cause of suffering. Uh, that's a wide latitude. And, um, and so, you know, if you have a question that's important to you, please ask it. And uh, we'll go from there. And um, do they just speak into the microphone or do they have to do anything to the switch? So all the mics are on. When, when, when it's handed to you, it's on. So you don't have to do anything except hold it close. I shared this story with you already, but it was such a powerful example of, of desire in my life and um, has given me some insight into other desires that I have experienced since then that uh, you know, I have some uncertainty in my life right now. And I was thinking of, uh, I had the thought during Zazen of the smell of baked goods how comforting that is. So then I had this thought, well, I'm going to bake something. So I go to the store and I buy the stuff and I say to my spouse, do we have sugar? He says, yes. So I go to make the stuff the next morning, no sugar. I'm angry. So I've already started the stuff. I put it away. I, when he wakes up, I say, we don't have sugar. And, you know, so there's this whole anger, you know, so I'm, I've violated the precepts. And, uh, you know, I worked with it, and I, I did the best I could with it. But, uh, you know, the whole seed of that was to get away from the uncertainty of my situation. Without being specific, can you... It's a health issue. It's, 
it's a serious health issue. So, please go on. And, um, and, so, and then I'm thinking about next weekend, too, where I'm going to go upstate, and there's a fair, and there's lots of things that I want. And so, but it's the seed of this thought. And I don't need to buy anything at this fair. But I'm able to discuss it. I'm able to acknowledge that I have this desire. I'm able to acknowledge that I don't need to act on it. You know, the thought is not the problem. But the energy creates something within me, the energy of that thought. And then I'm discussing it with, my, with, with Matt, and there's something there because he has his own stuff that he's responding to. So it creates something there between us as well. Can you repeat? Because there's a lot going on here. I mean, all of the world's suffering is in your, like you just said. I'm not kidding. Um, can you repeat, especially, Ken, the tone when you said to Matt about the sugar? There's no sugar. <laughs> you get it? And do you get the karma of that, both for him and to Matt? Now, Matt may have said, we'll give Matt a break here. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetheart. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll go run to the store and get it. But I'll bet you Nick Lee didn't say that. <laughs> so he responded out of his karma, out of his conditioning. out of, But it didn't come from no place, right? I mean, there was an input into, the, into his uh, reality that sparked him responding, that sparked you, perhaps, except something else happened. To stop that, to change the karma of it, what happened? So, I'm going to, if I may, I saw it. I saw my own mind in that moment, the mind of desire, greediness, and anger, and ignorance. I saw my mind. And that is such a crucial point. We sleepwalk through our lives as the default. Even when we're aware we're sleepwalking walking through our lives, that is our default. That's what we do. And right now, if you, know, you may not appreciate this, but above each of your heads, I can see a bubble with your thoughts. <laughs> That's obviously not true. But, um, you know... Each of us is going to receive what I just said in a different way. Acceptance, denial, oh, but, you know, that kind of thing. And yet knowing this is not enough. You know, know, the Buddha's teaching, as I've said many times, is an open book test. I mean, he put it out there. It's only out of the practice of studying your own mind that you get to do what Sayu was able to do in that moment. And it's only, and that practice includes endless times when you didn't do it. When you quote in your mind, you'll classify that as a failure. But actually, it's a failure only in that it perpetuates the karma. It's not a failure if you're practicing that, meaning looking back and seeing, oh, I did that once again. That's not the 10th consecutive time. That's the 10,000th consecutive time I responded to that cue in that way and created further karma. And so you're studying that. That comes out of Zazen. No Zazen, you don't have any chance of seeing your own mind. Either no Zazen or something equivalent to it. You just don't. Uh, we're just too asleep. This, the, the karma of lifetimes uh, that exist in this world 
that holds you and allows you to exist will not allow you, will not allow you in any way to be sensitive to your own mind without you sitting down and cultivating the stillness uh, to, to actually be quiet enough to see it. And that's not a fix either. That's the actually, in a way, the easy part. The hard part is when you do see it and have enough willingness to let go of that a specific way of reacting. That's much harder because the specific way of reacting feels so right to us, feels so whole to us. It's, it's so habitual. It's what you know. And why should you let go of that for something you don't know? And so that's the practice. Thank you for sharing that. Hello? Uh, are you speaking? Yeah. Please. Yes. What's... Okay. Someone else is going to speak and then you'll be next. Oh. Okay. There's a button on the bottom. Yeah, yeah but please don't anybody yeah. press any buttons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the person handing it to you will uh, make it live. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Please go on. Um, so the desire, greed, anger, ig- ignorance um, resonates with me, and um, but I, my personal experience of a lot of my my suffering comes from disproportionate reactions to perceived fear, mm-hmm. and um, so and. I think also like a lot of decisions I made in reaction in, in, in response to, to fear or threats. And I was wondering what the teaching is around that. Cause like a lot of the desires I have are like decisions I made when I was a kid about how to respond to fear. So I desire attention or I seek comfort, you know, but that was, you know, a decision I made when I was young that, so So that's a terrific question, and it's a universal question. All of us are designed through our sense of self to protect ourselves, protect ourselves from pain. It's our fundamental way of existing, and that's entwined in what the Buddha said. We go towards, we go away, we go numb. All designed to fulfill a desire, positively or negatively. So, what are you protecting? The self. Okay, so my question is what is the self? Now I'm asking this in a very particular context, the context of suffering. I mean, often we ask that in a, in a challenging way in Zen for you to, to answer in an awakened way. Now I'm challenging you to answer in a deluded way. <laughs> what is the self? Usually, I mean, in Zen speak, we say for number two, the origin of suffering is the self, the sense of a separate self. And that this practice, we often say, is to see into the self and to see that fundamentally, don't miss that fundamentally, that word fundamentally, there is no self. 
when, when you actually look for a sense of a separate self, and I invite you to do this, you're not going to be able to find it. You'll find parts, what are called skandhas. You'll find physical and mental constituents. But when you look for the nub of the self that's permanent and fixed and who you are, thank you very much, that's it. Good luck. So far, no one's been able to produce that. Now, theoretically, we can produce that. We can call it a soul, but no one's ever seen a soul. And there's also a sense of something, and that's undeniable, a sense of wholeness, and Buddhism certainly does not deny that. So I don't want to get into comparative religious studies here, um, but what is it actually, this is what we're examining in Zazen, that is that self. I don't want to fail. Okay, please use the microphone. That way. <laughs> because you failed to use the microphone. <laughs> okay. That's actually a terrific answer. And what's under that? You see where I'm going. Whatever you say, I'm going to take away from you and ask you to look deeper. Silence reigns. Thank you. Microphone so he can repeat. Uh, the self is under, I don't want to fail, the protection. You're looking what did to you just say? Desire. You want to okay, get away stop from there. Yeah. Don't screw it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the self. The self is desire. Desire for, to have, to not have, or to avoid. That's... I mean, does that shake you up? It shakes the shit out of me. You know, you're going to reduce me to desire? Of course, that's not from a, a, a Buddhist perspective. That's from a, a suffering perspective. We are a bundle of desires. And those desires need to be protected so we can have more or have less. I mean, we have a fantastic psychological ability to twist this into a particular way that suits our karma to either... Uh, produce it as joy and pain and call that satisfaction. I mean, we can do all, you know, we all know those tricks within us of self-punishment and self-criticism and, uh, or, you know, the endless desires to, to eat that gallon of chocolate ice cream that's still in my freezer and thank you very much, and, um, et cetera. Um, so what makes desire... I mean, this is the Buddhist teaching. He said the cause of suffering is desire. Open book test. So what's the problem with desire? Why is that a problem? Is it just desire? Because, you know, there's a desire to awakening. That's called bodhicitta. So that's a desire. Should we not have that desire? You can't awaken without it. So what's the problem with desires? So this is now a Mahayana perspective. It's a little bit different than the Buddha's original teaching. Uh, and Mahayanas, me, would say it's you know, a further development with time and culture 
the Buddha was teaching out of a particular time and culture. He was teaching the way he needed to teach in that time and culture to the people he needed to teach. Same thing is going on now. So it's one of the strengths of Buddhism that it adapts to the cultures that it's in. And so the language and um, the school of Buddhism um, has many different flavors. And this, of course, is not only true in Buddhism, but it's what I'm most familiar with. Now, someone had a question. I'm asking a series of questions, but I want to stop. The general rule is never have the audience actually tamper with the equipment. <laughs> so please, you do it <laughs> if there's any problem. As you know, I'm new here, so I'm not sure if I'm formulating the question. Just go ahead. Don't worry. Um, my, my question is about intergenerational karma. And um, as somebody... Sound, is she recording? And and is projecting. Okay, go on, I'm hearing you. Intergenerational karma? Yes. Um, I wondered if you could give some advice to somebody like me who is used to seeing suffering through the framework of psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. and shifting over from the couch to the cushion. Mm -hmm. Um, That's my general question. Can I... Can I give you a specific example? Sure. Since my mother died five years ago, I've been working with her karma. And I'm confronting her suffering, her fears, and her desires to be seen. The desires to be... To be seen. Well, you're not alone. And I'm assuming when you say you've been working with that, you've been working with it at some particular, in some particular manners. Some, you've been receiving support and help to do that. Is that true? Yes. But there's other ways to work with it. So... The, the basis of practice here, the matrix, matrix of practice here is the eight gates of Zen, and one of them, everything's based on Zazen. Everything's based on the ability, the cultivation of stillness and what can happen when the mind begins to slow down. It's not a switch. It begins to slow down and allows what is deep within us, this will be familiar to you, to begin to come up and be visible. And psychoanalysis is one way of doing that but there are others. And um, and one of the aspects of the eight gates that's crucial and hardest to talk about is liturgy. And you can understand liturgy from many different perspectives. The way it's articulated in this practice is, is it's the common experience of a community, liturgy. And so the common experience as I would understand it, of schools of Christianity may be the relationship with Jesus Christ or the Bible uh, or Muhammad 
or his teachings, etc., etc., etc. The common experience of the Zen community is that you contain the whole world. The whole world is you, as you. I'm not talking theoretically or philosophically. In your, as the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body is contained the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, in your body as well. And so, your relationship with your mom continues to this day and will never not continue. And there's a karma, powerful karma, that comes with that. So the question of karma, cause and effect, is how can you support the subsequent karma that comes out of your suffering and relationship with your mother in a way that's healing and helps you address her suffering and yours? And there are different practices to do that. So I'm going to give you an example. It's not specific to you, because you have to find them. My mother died when I was two. I have no memories of her, but there are many, there are a number of stories that link her to me in a way that is ridiculously impossible and yet happened. And so, how can I understand and repay that karma? That was the question I faced about 20 years ago. So one thing I did is I used the creative process to do that. So I'm just telling you a little bit about my journey. So I interviewed everybody who had known my mother that I could find who was still alive in 1950, who knew her then when she died. And I got a picture of her. Then I went and I visited her, which was no easy thing. Nobody knew where her grave was. So I had to really struggle to find it. Nowadays, it's easier to find graves, but back then it wasn't. And I would visit her as often as I could. It's way out on Long Island. It was not easy. I was living in a monastery in upstate New York. And do many prostrations, 100 prostrations, and a service to her each time. And then I sat down and I wrote. I wrote about my relationship with her. And I expressed what I needed to express about her, about what I knew about her life, and what I imagined in the last two years. She'd given birth to me and spent the next two years dying of leukemia, and what that was, and I knew some of the stories. And I brought her to life in me. She's dead, but she's alive in me. Now, that's fine when the descriptions that I was given of my mother were remarkably kind. How about my stepmother? My father remarried very quickly. It was not a pretty picture of what happened then. And there were a lot of reasons for it. I hated her. I actually, when I was eight or nine, plotted to kill her. So, now I take up this practice. How do I resolve that? So, how do I look through the life of my stepmothers? Look through her eyes. I interviewed her. I asked her for permission. I asked people I knew about what her life was. So, just to share this, 
I've said it before. She was beautiful blonde. She eloped. She lived in a tiny town in upstate New York, Liberty. She eloped when she was in high school. Her parents forced an annulment. She married again later. She had a beautiful child. Her husband dropped dead at the age of 35. And there she was and came to New York with a young child, 35. The only thing she had was her beauty and no means of earning a living. What do you think she did? You can fill in the blanks. Eventually she met my father, who had just lost his wife and had two kids and got married. So here was this woman who had no ability to understand or relate to a male child, or a female child for that matter, as it turned out, whose whole life was terrible, and I'm leaving out many of the terrible parts, and who I, as a child, certainly had no understanding in my hatred for her, and so on and so forth. So my job was to see life through her eyes. There are other practices that do that, Buddhist practices, which I'm not going to talk about now, but there are other practices that do that. It's not the practices aren't as as important as to put yourself in the life of your mother as best you can in whatever way you can. I'm not prescribing a way. You can find that in you. I have complete confidence. And when you know your mother, you know you. The rest... You don't have to worry about. Liturgy is a big part of that. The creative process is a big part of that because that allows liturgy is one way to express it, but it can be formulaic, which is fine if you relate to that. I do. Uh, The creative process is another way. Psychoanalysis is another way. It doesn't matter. You throw all the spaghetti at the wall and some of it's going to stick, as they say. (laughs) And you will change as a result. Now, I am not soliciting here, but the fundamental way is to shut up and sit, is to allow your mind to be your mind. And when you're quiet, you're free of karma. When when you go into the depths of Zazen, which is no small thing, you are in those moments free of karma, which is, by definition, enlightenment is a person who's free of karma. Now, don't misunderstand that because that has been deeply misunderstood in a relative sense. You're not, nobody's ever free in a relative sense of karma. But in an absolute sense, you're free. And you see that, and you understand that, and you get that. And your mother becomes free of karma in that moment because you and your mother, one body. Physically one body, literally one body, spiritually one body. And everything I've said, you already know. Thank you for your question. I have a question about um, uh, being seen and heard um, and cessation. And I find it highly annoying when teachers take away things from me. (laughs) And um, I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. What am I up to? 
you're showing me that I don't need something outside of myself. That I don't need to look outside of myself for what I really want, which is to not suffer. Um, But I think it is really hard and difficult to hear for people who grew, you know, have spent their whole lives not being, you know, with no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that's why, you know, Zen practice is really a, you know, major turnoff for a lot of people. Um, And I guess the question is, how do you... I mean, I know there is also, like, a big yes. Um, And how do you express that more? (laughs) Or, I don't know, you know, like, I just, I heard that in what the previous person said, and that's what stuck with me, is like, yeah, a lot of people experience that, a lot of people struggle with that, you know, not being heard. And how how do we understand the second noble truth in a way that isn't like shut up and sit you know mm-hmm. yeah well again I don't have an easy answer you know in, inherent in this Zen is a steep path and it asks a lot of us and as you've heard me say many times there are no free rides what does no free rides mean it means that in working with teachers, if there's permission, that's a key thing. If there's no permission, then it's just abusive. But if there's permission from the student, and the student and the teachings and the teacher and the sangha are in alignment of what you want, then each student not just you with the particulars that you're staying, saying, which is common, but each student in their own particular way is going to have to deal with exactly the question you just said. So let me put it in my infantile terms, but hopefully relatable terms. So I grew up totally being punished and repressed. So did my two sisters. So one reacted by leaving the house and getting married when she was 16 or 17, I got to get out of this hell. The other by um, having challenges about her weight, significant challenges, and that translated into other aspects of her life. And the other, me, by fighting, by rage, by aggression. And my life was at stake. My, not my physical life so much, but my existence. I'm not describing anything that's unique to me. I mean, the specifics are unique to me in a, in a not uncommon way. But this is the story of many of us growing up. And maybe it's an inevitable story. So now, in my practice, what do I have to face? This is who I am. This is, you know, you challenge me, I'm going to fight back, and I'm going to beat you. That's how I existed until I was 20 years old. 
And it doesn't matter if you beat me, I'm going to get off the floor and beat you. And you can understand beat you in any way you want, and it'll apply. That's how I lived. That's how I had to live. This is equivalent in your life. Now, what are my vows? So I enter this practice. I become a monastic. And that's great, and I want to. And I've finally discovered a way to take this incredible energy that I have that came out of that. You know, that energy came out of my fighting for my life. It was cultured by that. And it's wonderful. It's held me my whole life. And it's one of the reasons I'm able to offer that. So how do I take that energy of me being me that led to the survival of that I wouldn't exist without it, with that combativeness and aggression and the fear that underlies that, all the implications of that. There are many. Um, And now I'm taking vows to save all sentient beings. Oh, okay, I want to save all sentient beings. Now I'm taking vows to, you know, desires are inexhaustible, etc., etc., etc. Now I'm taking vows to help beings. How do I do that? Oh, I'll do that, no problem. When I see someone who needs help, I'll help them. But how about when I say something in an all-day sitting that hurts someone very, very badly, and yet seems so natural to me and so evident to me, why would that in any way not be an upholding of my vows? It would never occur to me that it would not be. I will never see that. I can never see that. I can't. I'm not that person in that specific circumstance that I've hurt, who happens to be a woman, a person of color, etc., etc. I can't be a woman. I can't be a person of color. I don't know that. And yet I hurt them, and I hurt them badly out of my ignorance. What do I do now? Because it sure as shit felt right when I said what I said. And yeah, I could have said it much more skillfully, and I can pull the skillful card, the skillful means card. But there's something much deeper going on there. There's an ignorance going on there. There's a self going on there, which I can't even see. So that's called our shadow self, psychologically. Thank you. People are familiar with that. And so I can't see my shadow self. doesn't matter how quickly I turn. I'm never going to see it. But what I can see is the suffering that that causes in someone else. I can see that. And I can see that coming back to me and saying, holy shit, there's something that I don't know and probably will never know that is within me and habitually, habitual and deeply conditioned. And now, what am I going to do about this? Because I can't even see it. So that, in a way, is my understanding of the question you're asking. If you want to wake up, now, you know, another parallel question is, how, how does someone who's, in, in effect, faced repression and shut up and not be heard um, address the psychological perspectives of that? And I'm not putting down that term psychological in any way, and step into themselves as a person, as a woman, or as a man, or as any of the labels that we put on people who are facing this, and, and have the wherewithal psychologically to do this practice and to be able to both 
come into their plain, simple humanity in the simplest psychological sense of the word and power in the simplest psychological word and still see through that from a spiritual perspective. And that's a struggle we all face. There's no easy answer to that. That's a struggle we all have to address personally and work with personally. And there's no magic answer to that because each person's journey is different and, and they have to decide that. They have to be responsible for that in a way that makes both sense to them but also allows for what, other, what else is going on in their life, a desire to awaken maybe or whatever it is. So that's a long-winded way of responding to what you're saying. And in the midst of that, all of us are going to sometimes, with the best of motivations, be unskillful. All of us are sometimes, with the best of motivations, be blind to our blindnesses. And if we as individuals don't acknowledge that, and particularly me in a position of power doesn't acknowledge that, and I have that brought to my attention by you, by others, by my sangha, then this is going to get fucked up. It's going to get fucked up. And occasionally it does get fucked up. And then the question is, when it gets fucked up, pardon my French, but I'm speaking to you as directly as I can. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Oh... <laughs> the the real question is what happens then that's the real question what happens then what do i do then what does the other person do then or what the series of circumstances are and so in a way that puts it back on you i don't have an answer to it but i have a way of understanding it that i makes sense to me that I try and work with internally. Thank you for your question. Was how do you deal with anger that is brought on by oppression due to somebody else's desires? I don't know. I'm not giving you a wise guy answer here. It's a challenge. Uh, Given what happens to people, um, given that oppression, it's always brought on by other people's desires. It's always brought on by greed, anger, and ignorance. I mean, the other other person, quote-unquote. And so, you know, in a stupid, simplistic sense, um, you know, that's what happened to you. Meaning... That's your karma? Well, that's the stupid simplistic sense. That's not a dismissal. But the reality of it, that is what is. And so the question is not so much. I mean, you can look at it from that perspective, but in the most personal sense, the question is, what are you going to do now? So it's like the question of having a terminal illness. What are you going to do now? It's like the question of when something really traumatic happens to me, you. What are you going to do now? How are you going to work with this and live, work with it is too superficial. Live with this 
in a way that um, begins to address your life and your responsibility. So I'm using responsibility in a very particular way, so stay with me here. You're not directly responsible in most cases and knowing a little bit of the circumstances, perhaps, for what happens to you in, in that kind of circumstance. You're not directly. But you are responsible because it happened to you. So now you have to live with this. And there are many levels of living with it. My job is to work with the spiritual level of it. There are other levels. There's sociological levels, there's legal levels, there's etc. But I'm not particularly interested in that because I can't be effective in that. As a practitioner, I can be effective at the spiritual level. So what is my contribution to this? To this situation, what is my contribution? What is my power? You always have power. You always, always, always have power. Sometimes that power is how you die. Sometimes that power is how you live. So your job, from my perspective, is to find your power. It's not to fix your pain. If it's something happened to you that was violent and aggressive and, you know, pretty clearly due to someone else's desires, however you understand that, you're not going to fix that. That's never not going to be there. When I go up to that altar and I see that altar, I see my mom. I still want my mommy. I still want my mother. That's never going to go away. This is never going to go away. There are things in life that never go away. My son, who I live with, is 42 years old. He's never not going to be my son. He once asked me, I don't understand the relationship between you and me. You love me so much, and I'm not completely sure of my feelings towards you. And I said, (laughs) well, if you've raised a child, you know what I'm talking about. And I said, you'll understand when you have your own child. He has three of them. He understands. (laughs) And he'll understand more as they get older. (laughs) So this is yours. You can look at it and understand it as something that defeats you, that this is applicable sideways to your question, to something that harms you, and that's it. Or you can say, now, how will I use this? How will I use this to help me? And that's a big question. I don't have an answer. My tendency is to suggest you start with spiritual practice and see your own mind. But that's not a complete answer. There's much more that may have to be done depending on the specifics of your situation, who you are, and what makes sense to you. So that's just a, that's just a beginning of a way that I could ask that question, answer, address that question. I'm not answering it. I'm trying to address it in a, in a way. I hope that's helpful. There's also someone in the back and someone in the front. Heard you ask earlier, what are you protecting? Do I understand and and uh, do I understand correctly that whatever it is that I'm protecting is never the self because the self does not exist? 
the self not existing is an, a, 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 what I would say a awakened perspective. But in, but in how, how will you use that in a deluded from a deluded perspective, which is our ordinary perspective? As deluded I, human beings, how will you answer that? What I found encouraging about that was that there's something more specific that I can actually, in my experience, that I can see and work with, as opposed to the self. That's uh, that there's something being held onto. There's something that's being held at bay, and that it's those things, like with that real texture, that I'm actually either trying to protect, that I'm either trying to hold on to and protect, preserve it, or to protect myself from it. So I think you're bringing up something that's very important, uh, but I want to change a little bit of yeah. where you went with this. You can always have a self. You will never not have a self. So you might as well make the best use of it. So what's the difference? And this is what I was getting at when I was saying, what is the self? What's the difference, given that we always will have a self, if you've known people who've had some degree of insight, they're people. In fact, if anything, when I look at the people who I most admire for their insight, I mean, they had usually very distinct personalities, very distinct aspects of themselves. So what's the difference between the self that lives out of greed, anger, and ignorance and the self that does their best to, to live out of helping all beings? What's the difference? It's the same, but they both have a self. What's functionally the difference? There's no grasping. I'm sorry? There's no grasping. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not There's kidding. no grasping. So what's another word for grasping? Clinging, attachment. desire. Attachment. 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 And attachment is, at the, is the self. It's another perspective of the self. So what is attachment? You notice whenever we lodge someplace, we question that. There's a reason for that. What is attachment? (laughs) Actually, that was an innocent looking at my watch. (laughs) But it does fit. Microphone, please. That's all right. We want to record it. We attach to something, so it underlies a separation. Okay, so look at what she just said. In attachment, there's now two things. There's two things, right? You consisting of your desires and what you want or don't want, etc. And the thing out there, that thing that represents or is what you want or don't want. Two things. Why is that a problem? Why does that cause suffering? Why does attachment cause suffering? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I have to respect, we have to respect 
I guess you won't be able to say anything. <laughs> well, just because it reinforces the idea of separation. I mean, it's just it's what we already said. Hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> so attachment does perpetuate separation, but why is that the problem or a problem, a big problem? Because it's it's comes out of delusion. It's not. And what is real. the delusion? The delusion is that we're separate. Delusion is that we're not. And so why does that cause suffering? Because it's not based on reality. Thank you. It's not true. So now we're getting into what this practice is entirely about. And this is not conceptually very accessible to us. We can understand what's being said, what... And what Donna just said intellectually, but to actually have that be our own experience is a whole other thing. This comes back to how we live. We live from the perspective of attachment and separation. You're out there, I'm here. Whatever I want is out there. Think of what you want. What do you want? Doesn't matter what it is. It's out there. It's apart from you. What happens if your perspective... I mean, just use your imagination here. If your perspective is that there's nothing outside you, now there's no way to grok that, if I can use a slightly obsolete but applicable term. Uh, there's no way to... But try. What, 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 what do you lack when there's nothing outside you? When that is your direct experience of life. Now, I'm not saying all the suffering of life has gone, gone away. Suffering... And non-suffering, one whole thing. You're going to suffer even if you wake up. Me too. But it's a whole different thing. It's seen through. What's seen, what is being seen through? So I would have to use dharmic words to address that, and I don't want, I'm trying to avoid that because they represent something that, again, we can't imagine. But w- when you're sitting zazen, what are you seeing? What are you actually seeing when the mind is still and quiets down and insight creeps into us slowly or sometimes all at once and infiltrates us? What are you actually experiencing? You know, the Buddha used terms like... Uh, um, impermanence, that there is no things. There is, we talk about no self. We, t- we talk about the non-dual dharma. There aren't two things to it. We talk about emptiness. So these are all code words that have in and of themselves not a lot of value except as fillers or except as more things to attach to, even in the name of spiritual practice, and get lost along the way. But when you taste chocolate ice cream for yourself, and someone gives you vanilla ice cream, you're not, and they say, this is chocolate, you're going to go, it's not chocolate ice cream. It's vanilla ice cream. When you know for yourself, you know that you know that you know Nothing can take that away from you. And in terms of spiritual practice, as you gradually, usually, gradually realize for yourself, 
your whole being. And where that ends, it doesn't. (laughs) Then how does that affect in the relative world of relationship where things seem apart? And you know they're not, and yet they seem apart. How will that affect you? And in the places where your vision doesn't extend, I've talked about that, how will you practice that? Because you know you're hurting people. How will you do those things? Those are individual choices based on your life and your karma and supported by your decisions. Karma, again. This is your opportunities. So, as many of you know, you know, we end, and this is a good place perhaps to end, but you had a question back there? Okay. Um. Uh, Hold on, hold on. We end evening sittings with the evening gatha. Life and death is of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by. Each of us should strive to awaken. Awaken, take heed. Please don't squander your life. Well, if you're going to squander your life, okay, you'll have plenty more lifetimes later. But meanwhile, there are people, are politicians among them, us among them in our own individual karmic way, who are creating immense suffering. Now, what are we going to do about it in this lifetime now? You're going to die in a few years. What are you going to do about it now? That's what's being asked here. All right, I'm thrilled that there are a lot of questions. (laughs) It is 1230. Um, I'll allow one more question. Hold on. Did you have a question? Yes. Um, It was just simply about bringing the practice on into your daily life, especially when it comes to maintaining stillness in turbulent environments and turbulent home environments and family environments. You know, you can't choose the family that you're born in. Um, When it's kind of, it's really easy to maintain a stillness when you're in practice or when you kind of create a peaceful environment and go into meditation. But then when you're in 90% of the time in highly stimulant, stimulating environments how do you maintain that stillness without just checking out because you don't want to just say well i'm better at peace so i'm just going to kind of walk away from everyone else you can't really move through life that way you need these people and you can't be the change in their lives for them Mm -hmm. but you still have to be present within yourself so how is it a good way to kind of just maintain that stillness while still being present and then not being overwhelmed by the you know, raging waters of everyone around you? Yeah, good question and a difficult question. Uh, But I want to change the kind of the parameters of the question a a bit, and then I'll more directly address it, if I may. So you're speaking in terms of practice. In terms of realization, realization is not uh, the production of a mind that's always peaceful and calm and still. It's not that. No such mind exists. No such person exists. So an enlightened being is not that. So then what is realization? What is awakening? What are you awakening to? So how about that when your mind is calm and peaceful and everything is fine? That's one side. How about when your mind is disturbed and angry and 
ready to scream and you're overwhelmed, etc. That's the other side. What's the difference in someone who has a basis of spiritual practice and someone who does not in that situation? They can view those things as... They can view those things as things that are kind of coming and going, but not necessarily true to their true nature? Well, how do you practice in the midst of a hurricane? You practice it. You practice it to the best of your human ability. So you're facing a set of circumstances. You're overwhelmed. There's somebody in front of you. I'm just going to make this up. There's somebody in front of you who you're supposed to pay attention to or is demanding your attention or whatever those circumstances are. You don't feel you're able to do it, and yet here you are. What do you do? From a spiritual perspective, forget awake and deluded. From a spiritual perspective, what do you do? Breathe. (laughs) You do the best you can with awareness. You do the best you can with awareness. So sometimes in life, I like to think most times, when my button is pushed, I'm aware of it. I see it. I take it in. I acknowledge it. I let it go. And I respond appropriate to the circumstances in the most kindest way that I can. You think that happens all the time? Probably not. So what happens when it doesn't happen that way? I see it or I don't see it. And blah, 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 blah. So what happens then if I'm practicing? Literally, what happens then? What do I do? I'm practicing. I'm doing my best. But Mm -hmm. I'm a human being, and sometimes I don't do as well as I'd like to do. And I hurt others. What do I do? What do you do? Acknowledge it, and then change it. So you acknowledge it. Sometimes that acknowledgement... So the the question I ask myself, if, if I can get myself to acknowledgement in that time, sometimes it's not till minutes, days, hours, weeks, years later... You know, depending on the circumstances. But, but what the, the question then becomes, what is the most skillful thing that I'm not just satisfying myself? So it's not about the apology. It's about what actually holds. It's about the true vow to save all sentient beings. So the person's in front of me. I've done what I've done or said what I've said. So what actually is the most skillful thing? So there's, there's a process in Buddhism called skillful means, upaya, of practicing your practice. What actually holds this situation best? Might be to say nothing. Might be to say nothing. Because it will just further harm the situation to say, oh, I'm sorry, I hurt you. It might be that I can't say anything at that. I don't have the capacity, the inner capacity. I'm too confused and hurt and aggressive or not aggressive or running away. So maybe I have to say nothing. Maybe I have to run away. That happens in situations. Maybe I have to say to the person, I'm sorry, right now I can't respond. I'll come back in five minutes. Maybe I've said something and... I'm really sorry. I said something and I know I hurt you. So look at all these, and there are more. I could go on. So it's not the specifics. This is no formula here. 
It's actually seeing as best you can in our own individual clumsy way, sometimes in the midst of good intentions, even while I'm apologizing, I'm screwing up some more. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and we're doing the best we can as human beings. But the question is, are we aware? Are we doing our best to be aware? Meaning, are we practicing whatever that means to us at that time and place? Are we really doing our best, in my terms, to uphold my vows as best as I can as a confused, limited, from this perspective, human being with my karma, my accoutrements of this life, and, and doing the best I can? Am I doing that? And sometimes it's clear I'm not. And then what do I do? So there's always that question of then, what do I do? There's no final judgment in practice. There's no end to practice and realization. So that's the best answer I can really give you from the perspective of practice. Okay. All right, I think we have to end because we have to end. <laughs> so let's chant the four bodhisattva vows. And um, if you wish, we'll go up and have some refreshments. And, or in any case, please enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash jizoproject. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.